wouldn't do any good to hang that around my neck, would it? It'd be like a millstone. Yeah. The Gospel of John, the Gospel of Belief. The reason it wears that title is because John said that's what he wrote for. That was his purpose in writing in John 20, verse 30 and 31. He said, truly, as he closed out the letter, the epistle, he said, truly, many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. That's his stated purpose. And so it wears the title among men and has for since it was written, and it's recognized as the gospel of belief. They all are, but this one in particular was written with evidence to, to substantiate beyond doubt the reality of Christ being the Son of God. Now, we began in the prologue. That's where John begins. He introduces his subject in the first 18 verses of chapter 1. He introduces him uh, uh, in from many aspects and so far we got down last week to the word and life remember he's talking about the word the logos he said in the beginning was the logos the word the word was with God the word was God the same was in the beginning with God and by him all things were made and without him was not anything made that is made and in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shined in darkness, and the world accepted it not. And so John is in the prologue introducing his subject that's going to be in the book. And throughout this book, you're going to read about Jesus, many, all of the many aspects of him. And primarily, you're going to see his divinity, because John didn't write all the miracles that Jesus done. He only wrote of the ones that he, uh, that inspiration inspired him to declare that would declare Jesus to be the Son of God. And so we see in the John's Gospel the completeness, the fullness of the Godhead in the Son bodily. Uh, there's a scripture that says that. Paul says that in one of his epistles, that in Christ is revealed the Father and his divinity bodily. That's why Jesus came to reveal the Father. And in that revelation, uh, Jesus' purpose was not to preach the gospel that you might believe, because he did not do that. Now we've got to get that through this thick skull up here. And it's very simple. Uh, Jesus told the apostles on one occasion, greater works then these that I do shall ye do. Well, they never done any more greater works if you're looking at miracles and signs and wonders and things like that than Jesus did. So what was Jesus talking about? Well, when you put the picture together from the scriptures, Jesus selected, chose 12 men. He promised in John 15, verse 16. He said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And then in chapter 14, John 14, verse 25 and 26, and also in John 16, verse 12 and 13, 
Jesus on those both of those occasions promised the apostles the Spirit to guide them into all the truth and to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so these men were inspired of God. Uh, these men, uh, Jesus left them to declare the truth to you and I. In fact, he told the apostles, he told these men in John 14, he said, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. In other words, he's telling them you're too immature. You can't handle them, but that is no problem. He said, Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all the truth. So, did we have all the truth from Jesus? No, we did not. We did not. And it brings us back to Jesus' purpose. His purpose in this world was to present divinity and the love of divine divinity. <coughs> the love of God and God himself. His nature, his character, his personage. And that's what John will say in the prologue in verse 18, the last verse of the prologue. He'll tell us very clearly, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth, He has declared Him. Alright, so we need to understand then that Jesus' work was not to tell you what you must do to be saved in a specific way. His job was to establish the credibility that he brought salvation to the world. And the apostles were to reveal the, the fullness of the truth. And before the, under the shadow of the cross, Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 20, 21. He said, uh, uh, <laughs> Well, I just drew a blank. Uh, what was it, John 17? He said, uh, no, I'm going to have to look it up. Neither pray I for these alone. For all them that will believe on me through their word. All right, so our belief is established where? On Jesus' word or on their word? Now, I'm not trying to indicate that Jesus lied to us. But he didn't tell us the fullness of He sent apostles into the world to preach the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and all that it implied. But his mission, his purpose, was to present these miracles to prove that he was the Son of God. And that's it. That is it. Jesus could not have presented the new covenant which is conversed to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, Hebrews 10.1, was a shadow of better things to come. The Old Covenant presented Jesus in figures, in types, in allegories. And that's what it, that was its mission, its purpose. But Jesus didn't dare try to teach a new covenant until the time was... Uh, ready, and that time was after he died. Uh, Hebrews 5, 8 and 9, he became the author of eternal salvation by the things which he suffered. And that means that after death on the cross, then the apostles went forth and they waited.
separated at Jerusalem like Jesus told them in Acts 1. The Spirit come, and the Spirit began through them to announce the truth of God's Word. Well, it started by proving that Jesus was the Son of God, that He rose from the dead. And as soon as it done that, then the Jews, recognizing the reality of it, they cried out, men and brethren, what should we do in verse 37? And Peter told them for the first time, the first time, on the birthday of the church, when those who were called by God obeyed the gospel by being baptized for the remission of sins. And that's what Peter told them to their answers to what they must do. He said, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And so we've got to understand Jesus' purpose in coming to this world. His purpose was to prove he was the Son of God. John wrote his gospel and he said there was many other signs Jesus done that are not written in this book. Wasn't my purpose just to blare out everything that Jesus done. In fact, in the end of the book of John, he tells you that if everything was recorded that Jesus done and said and about Jesus, the world would not be able to contain the books. And so God, by inspiration through John, wiped the slate clean and showed us the precise preciousness of the fact that Jesus was truly who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And it was proved by his divinity in those miracles he performed. He started out proving that he was uh, divine in that he had power over uh, quality. He went to a wedding feast, changed water to wine. The best wine that the tasters had ever tasted. And then the miracles proceeded as it declared Jesus divine over uh, uh, he was uh, he was divine and had ultimate power over life, over death, over diseases, over misfortune, over quality, over quantity. And all those miracles that John presents are to, to assure you that he was the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, John said, you might have life in his name. So, John in the prologue in introducing Jesus declares he speaks of the word and deity. Jesus was divine. We've already studied that. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. By Him all things were made. Verse 2 and 3. And so the Word, and John speaks of the Word in creation. In those verses. Verse 2 and 3. And then in verse 4, 5, and 9, we're down to our study this morning as we finish up looking at the Word and life. Because John says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Alright, so that's where we're beginning this morning in looking at the life of Jesus. Did you know that there's people who advocate in the world we live in that you don't need... <laughs> All the epistles, all you need is the four Gospels. That is sick and that is sad, but that's the way it is. I had a fellow call me 
And he said, if I had time, I could, I could convince you that all you needed was the four Gospels. That you don't need all the epistles. <laughs> now that's hard to comprehend. But that's how the denominational world gets out from underneath the commands of being baptized for the remission of sins. See, in the Gospels, it's not presented. There's a baptism in there that John was performing, but that wasn't for the forgiveness of sins because Jesus hadn't even died yet. Uh, we've discussed that earlier, so I won't get into that. But uh, they like to get rid of the epistles, so that leaves open door. Just, just, just believe, and you're okay. And actually, that's where salvation is, isn't it? Just believing. Isn't it? Well, don't look at me shocked like that. It is. What did you... Okay, I'll prove it. You look like you need proof. What's John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he done what? He gave his only begotten son. To what intent? That all men might believe in him. And by believing, have eternal life. But you see, we fail to see the... The, the impact of believing. If you believe in Jesus, what are you going to do? Believe all his You're going to follow him. You're going to do whatever he says, whether you understand it or not. You're going to be like that phrase that somebody invented a few years ago. Uh, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I may not understand it, but that settles it. And so uh, that was the nature of the case then. So we're looking at the word and life. <coughs> verse 4, verse 5, and verse 9. <coughs> John says, in him was life. So John declares the logos, or the word, to be the dynamics behind creation. And they are. Genesis 2 and verse 7. God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. And he become a living soul. Uh, and so life began with God's activity of breathing into man's breath. The life of, uh, into man's life the breath of life. <coughs> the word life <coughs> in this context denotes not merely uh, conscious existence. That's not what life means here. Uh, but rather the life of God as a principle. In other words, eternal life expressed in human experiences. In other words, Logos is its source and embodiment. <coughs> we looked at that last week. I just thought I'd refresh your memory. And then John says there in that context about the word in life, he says, and the life was the light of men. The word light is used in a figurative sense referring to the clear manifestation of the righteousness of God. The clear manifestation of the righteousness of God. Do we have everything that we need? To make us sufficient? We do. 
have the clear manifestation of the righteousness of God. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, All scriptures inspired of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, to the intent that the man of God may be complete. Am I complete? Are you complete in what we know and what we follow? Absolutely. The righteousness of God. And so Jesus was uh, uh, the clear manifestation of the righteousness of God. Uh, look at the uh, uh, third chapter, verse 19 of John. 319. And this is the condemnation on the world, that light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Follow that to verse 20 and 21. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, and neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So the light is a reprover, isn't it? It reproves man's... That's why we come, doesn't it? It's to learn what we must do to be saved. To learn how we're to walk. And verse 21, But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, and his deed, that his deeds may be manifest, uh, that they are wrought in God. He's following God. He's doing what God wants. Now look at the 12th chapter of John in verse 35. 1235. In regard to this light. Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. And so Jesus declared himself to be that light that illuminates the hearts and minds of men with a clear manifestation of the righteousness of God. And number three, I think I got that on the board there. Uh, yeah. He's the fountain of life. And there's the effects of life on men. It shined in a dark world and some accepted it, some didn't. And now the power of life. He states here. And the light shined in darkness. Now, here the plot is introduced. The effect of the divine life is manifested in the world through the Logos, but the world is not readily receptive. Wasn't ready for him. Wasn't his fault, it was their fault. Jesus told them they teach him for doctrine the commandments of men, Matthew 17. Now darkness denotes ignorance, guilt, Misery, wickedness. Uh, and then he says there in that context, that, and the darkness comprehended it not. 
Now the word comprehend is uh, better translated apprehend or overcome. Uh, there's many other translations of it. The RSV says has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome the light. And the meaning is that darkness has no affinity for light. And if the one exists, the other must be displaced. Either got darkness or you got light. And so the continual uh, resistance of the light to darkness and the inability of darkness to triumph in spite of the utmost that hatred and unbelief can do is the chief themes of John. He says also, he speaks of the scope of life. Uh, number four on the outline there. The scope of life. That was, uh, that was the true light which lighteth every man was coming into the world. The word true means real as to its source, its origin. And so Jesus proved that by the miracles he'd done. That was his work, his mission. And he finished it. That's what he cried out on the cross triumphantly. He said, it is finished. He finished. In fact, before the cross, he, he prayed to his father right under the shadow of it. John 17, verse 5. And he was anxious to depart this world. And he prayed to the Father and he said, Father, glorify thou me with the glory which I had with thee from the beginning. Now glorify me because I've finished the work that you gave me to do. And so he was anxious to get back and he had finished the work. Now the world will tell you that he's not finished yet. He's coming back sometime and he's going to uh, go back to Jerusalem and set up a kingdom and all of this stuff. And we're going to reign a thousand years in the old dirt down here. All nonsense, all nonsense. It's all a confusion of darkness that has crept upon us and the only thing that illuminates is the brilliance of the light of God's word that will penetrate that darkness and dispel it. So John is saying here, uh, uh, this is the original light of which all others are feeble copies, that's all. The real in context to the illusionary. Uh, from the Logos proceeds all spiritual illumination. That's why we preach Jesus. We don't preach ourselves. We don't preach human philosophy because it is filled with darkness. But we look to the Logos, the word that was manifested in human flesh. All right, let's look at the world, uh, the word and the world. Its relationship in verse 10. In verse 10 he says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Well, let's discuss what he said there in verse 10. He was in the world. Now that's the world present. Uh, the word world is referring to the material and spiritual environment in which man lives. So he come to this world, didn't he? 
he saw this planet in trouble and God sent his son to deliver it. And he was rejected. But he, uh, he was in the world. <coughs> so John says, the Logos has entered into the framework of life and has taken an active part in it. And of course, we've had studies on uh, the life, the the life that Jesus lived, the life He took on. In Philippians two five, you remember, uh, Paul said, "Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who thought it not a thing of robbery to be equal with God, a thing to be grasped and held onto. He surrendered that." And he gave up his divine prerogatives to become a man. And so Jesus humbled himself from heaven's being the creator of this universe to become a man. And then he humbled himself again as a man to, to uh, go by way of the cross. And when he did, he cried out, it's finished, because that was the finality of it. It was complete. It didn't need anything else. The Mormons do not understand that. They don't have a clue about that. That when Jesus cried out, it's finished on the cross, it was finished. When he prayed to his father in John 17, 5, and said, I finished the work you gave me to do, it's finished. It's finished. But there, oh, you got to have a, a Latter-day Revelation. you got to have this, that, that. No, you don't. That's a lie. It's a fraud. It's a sham. In Deuteronomy the 18th chapter, read it sometime, God promised to send the Jews. They wanted to know, how are we going to know when a man comes from you? Because anybody can say, well, God spoke to me last night, and here it is. And so the Jews had that question, well, you're going to reveal yourself to us, how's that going to be? And in Deuteronomy 29, God established the prophets. And he gave them the power to perform things, uh, miracles and things, that would put them in, uh, that would show that they were spokesmen for God, for, for God. And that's what miracles are. That's what miracles are. Miracles isn't to razzle-dazzle. We don't have miracles today because we don't need them. We have the fullness of God's word. And the miracles was there to prove that the spokesman was speaking from God. That's why the apostles had those powers. We don't. We don't have those powers anymore. We don't need those powers anymore. But the world's still out here talking about miracles as though they had some significance in our lives. They did back then because Hebrews 2 verse 4 it says God also bearing them witness. And in the context, verse 2 and 3, it's talking about Christ and the apostles. And it said God also bearing them witness. How did he do it? With signs and miracles, uh, gifts of the Holy Ghost, and there's a list of things there. But miracles are included in there. Miracles was to prove who Jesus was. They weren't just to razzle-dazzle people and Childbirth is not a miracle. Oh, it's a miracle. Oh, it's a miracle. They have worn that word out. A miracle is that which defies natural law. And 
childbirth is the law of procreation. It was started back in Adam and Eve, with Adam and Eve. So this is not a miracle. Childbirth and those things are not a miracle. We don't have miracles today. We don't need them. Burl, you covered it. Uh, when I after I was baptized, I asked, what's the definition of a miracle? Because as you mentioned, it is a worn out word. Everything's a miracle. And as you mentioned, it's a supernatural happening that defy or that defies naturalistic explanation. So that somebody falls off some railings like they did here last week. Oh, it's a miracle nobody got hurt. No, it really wasn't. No. You know, they fell five, six feet and landed on their fat bellies. I don't, I don't know. But. but see, if the devil can get us to believe that there's miracles happening everywhere, he has di di diminished the power of what God used to prove the spokesman that he sent to this world, that his son and the apostles. And so, uh, he says also, and the world was made by him. Uh, now there's the word active. Here's his activity. He took an active part in this world that we live in. He came and he suffered as a man. Oh, but he was God. You better believe he was God. He didn't surrender his divinity. He surrendered his divine prerogatives. When he came to this world, he was born truly like a baby's born. He potted his diaper. If I can suggest that without hurting anybody's little feelings. He potted his diaper. He cried for milk. Just like little guys do. And he studied the scriptures. That's where he learned his mission. His mama not only told him many, many times, I'm sure, because she pondered these things in her heart, the scripture says, what the angel told her, that his name would be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And also he will be Emmanuel, which means by interpretation, God with man. And that boy grew up knowing that he was special and he had to learn the speciality of his mission and he learned them where the same way we learn them by faith he stood on the mount of temptation in matthew 4 by faith he answered the devil with the scriptures that we use he used three scriptures to defy the devil and send him on his way it is written it is written it is written, and the devil left because he saw what he was up against. And so Jesus illustrated for us the power of the faith that we have, that he had. And so Jesus had to come to learn his mission in life. No wonder he stood back at the, when his folks went to pay taxes in Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, he... Uh, they, when they went back home after paying taxes, he wasn't with the caravan. And they went back and found him. And they were a little upset with him. 
And they asked him why he didn't go with them. He said, don't you know I must be about my father's business? And so he was involved in the business of doing what God sent him here to do. He had to learn what it meant. And that's what Hebrews 5, 8 and 9 says. He learned what it meant to obey by the things that he suffered. He suffered like you and I. But somehow in our little pea brain, we get this idea. Oh, yes, but he see, he was God. He was, but he faced this world like you and I do with the only weaponry we have. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. A helmet, hope of salvation, a girdle of truth, feet prepared with a, to go with the gospel, a sword, uh, which is the word of God, a shield, which is our faith, that's all he had, and that's all we've got. Breastplate of righteousness. And he faced this world on the same grounds, under the same terms that you and I do. And that's how it had to be, because a man, man sinned, and man was worthy of death, and death had to come to a man. He stepped up and said, I'll be that man. Let me die for the world. And he did. So... So John says there in uh, verse 10, he was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Uh, the word knew there in that text means that they didn't realize him. They didn't realize him. Uh, the world as a system had no comprehension of the manifested word or logos and no place for him. They didn't even have a place prepared for him when he come, did they? And yet it's interesting that the Persians sent wise men. Not three. They sent three gifts, but they sent wise men. They was a whole company of them that came over from Persia, which is, lead, which is over to the east and the south of, of Palestine. And they traveled over because they studied the Hebrew Scriptures. They weren't Jews. They were Persians. And they saw when his coming was. They predicted it from prophecy. And they came over and presented themselves before Herod. That's very natural uh, in a governmental economy for them to do that. They said, we've come to pay tribute to your new king. And out of his jealousy, he set forth to kill him. Uh, told him, when you find him, uh, anyway, he said, come back and let me know where he's at. That I may worship him. He wanted to kill him. Because later he killed all the baby boys from two years and under in Jerusalem. He didn't do it with COVID-19. He did it with a sword. We're doing it with COVID-19. Very smooth, very modern. How many like that? That's what I thought. Well, think about it. <laughs> so the world as a system had no comprehension of the manifested word and no place for him. Uh, 
uh, Synoptic Gospel shows that the majority of the people had only a superficial comprehension of him, and even his own disciples did not clearly understand his words, his personality, or his mission. They didn't. Remember right up to the last in Acts 1, after Jesus rose from the dead and just before he ascended into heaven, he was talking for 40 days and nights, Luke says, with his apostles about the kingdom. And what did they ask Jesus? In verse, uh, uh, about verse 16, they said, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They had no concept of the kingdom. They still looked at it nationalistic. And Jesus didn't bother explaining to them. He just said, that's none of your business. You just wait at Jerusalem like I told you until you be endued with power from on high. And they did. And that's when the Spirit came and revealed things to the world and also to Peter and the other apostles. I get tickled when I see how Peter preached to himself. Because that's what a preacher does, preach to himself. But these men were inspired. And they reveal things that they learned from. There's Peter. Uh, Matthew 16, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus said, one of these days you're going to travel back to Jerusalem with me. And you're going to see me tried, maligned, and crucified. And Peter patted that sword and said, not so, Lord. It won't happen to you because I'll defend you. Jesus said, you get behind me, adversary, for you mind not the things of God but the things of men. He was looking at this not through the eyes of God and the mind of God, but through the eyes and mind of men. They misunderstood his, everything about him. And until the Spirit came. The Spirit is revealer. And then later... In the garden, the soldiers came, and Peter proved true to what he said in Matthew 16. Because they came to arrest Jesus, and Peter drew his sword and smote off the high priest's servant's ear. I don't think he aimed for that ear, do you? I think he was going to make two of that fella. <laughs> but in a moment of excitement like that, I can see how you can miss a few inches like that and come down on the ear. And Jesus said, put up the sword, Peter, for how can we fulfill the will of God if we fight? It was the will of God that Jesus died at Calvary. And Peter announced that when the Spirit came on him. And I'd love to have been there to see his eyes grow large in acknowledgement of what his vocal cord said. Because you remember Jesus told him in Matthew 10, verse 19 and 20, he said, Take no thought what you shall speak or what you shall say when you're brought up before magistrates, because it will be given you in that very moment. So don't prepare to, to go before the magistrates that way. Verse 20, he said, For it is not you that speaks, but the Spirit of my Father which is in you. Those men were inspired. So here's Peter standing on the day of Pentecost. And he's preaching. Verse 22. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man that was approved of God among you by miracles and signs and wonders which God did by him in your midst as ye yourselves also know. 
Look at verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. And for the first time, Peter saw why the sword was not going to deliver the Lord. It was, he was destined to die. And Peter stood as an adversary to the Lord, him and his sword. Did the Lord tell him to put up the sword? The world's telling us to surrender our guns. What about that? He didn't tell Peter to put up the sword. In fact, when, before he left, he told the apostles, go buy two, and that'll be sufficient. Because they was going to go into the world of man with the gospel. And it's going to go down that road of Amos where the Samaritan came across a man who had been hit by bandits. I don't know why the Lord told him to pick up the sword, but anyway, there's a contrast there. The world in its ignorance does not understand those things. But, uh, so here... John says, and the world knew him not. Uh, they didn't realize him being the Son of God. You see, they thought, like men think, oh, well, our mighty king that we read about in the Old Testament, why, surely he's going to come on a white charger, snorting nostrils, you know, like horses do, and stomping the ground and with a drawn sword, killing the Romans. He didn't come that way, did he? He came by way of a manger, and he come to die. So, so what's involved in Jesus' life is the fact that he came to present himself as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And the apostles were commissioned to declare the truth. And that's why in Acts 2.42, it says of those 3,000 Jews that obeyed the gospel on the birthday of the church, it says, and they, those 3,000, continued steadfastly in what? The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking the bread, and a prayer. So in the formalism of worship and service, what are they? Follow the apostles' teaching. That's why we come to Bible class, isn't it? We're hopeful that maybe the teacher knows a little bit to teach us something about the Word of God and to raise our elevation of who He is. That's why we're studying the Gospel of John. And so the believer is one who continues unbrokenly in the teachings of the apostles in fellowship. Fellowship. Fellowship, not standing off like you were some kind of a stranger, but fellowship. We need to get to know one another, love one another, don't we? And help one another, to teach one another. Oh, but that's a preacher job. We hire a preacher to do that. No, you don't. Paul said in Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, he said, teach uh, singing and making uh, Sing Singing and making melody in your heart. <laughs> Admonishing one another. Yeah. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. 
Do we all do that? When we when we sing, that's what we do. The sad thing about it is you got to ask yourself the question. If an unbeliever walked in that door and sat down beside you and heard you sing in the audience of singers, could he be convinced that you believe what you're singing? Oh, hello, Jesus. And we just kind of pump the words out like it was a, uh, a duty to do rather than really expressing uh, our feeling for one who traveled from heaven's bliss to this world of man that man had polluted and corrupted and delivered us. And so they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, and in prayer. Our James up, in it? And so the synoptic gospel shows the majority of the people had only a superficial comprehension of him. And even his own disciples did not clearly understand his words, his personality, or his mission. I didn't finish that one thought I was trying to get across. When Peter uh, received the Spirit like the other apostles on the day of Pentecost, verse 14 says he stood up with the eleven to give answer to that great audience of Jews. Uh, you remember uh, Peter said in verse 23 that Jesus was delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. You know that's the first time Peter learned that? The Spirit is speaking through his vocal cords. The Lord done told him, it's not you that speaks, but the Spirit of my Father which is in you. And here Peter recognized for the first time why Jesus had to die and why Jesus called him an adversary in Matthew 16. He understood. And I imagine his eyes bulged out. Don't you? I imagine they were some human expression of the stupidity that he had for three years with the Lord. And the Spirit revealed not only to the audience he spoke to, but to him. Those men were unique. They were given the word to reveal it. And it also revealed things to them. And so, this ignorance was the basis of the conflict that existed uh, when, uh, oh, because the world knew not. This ignorance was based on the conflict for uh, what the world did not appreciate, it rejected. And what it rejected, it hated. And man hadn't changed a bit, had he? He does the same thing today. That's the nature of man. So next week we'll get to the word uh, and men. Yeah, we finished what I put on the board. Thank you. Thank you.